Today, my co-host is back, Mr. Ray Mellick. We'll be talking to you guys about the legislative session uh, as it's coming to a close, giving you kind of a summary of the things that have happened, uh, as well as um, chiming in a little bit on some of the the statewide uh, elections as well. You won't want to miss it. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I've got an exciting and somewhat depressing, but maybe something happy episode for you today as we're covering the (laughs) legislative session. Uh, That's a heck of an intro. Yeah, no, but you'll definitely want to stick around because you want to be depressed with us. Isn't that right? Misery loves company. (laughs) No, but as as we kind of tackle the the things that are going on in the legislative session, um, really the last almost since the podcast started, we had some fun ones where we talked about sports and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the big, you know, 800 pound gorilla, the elephant in the room that uh, what's taking up all the air right now is, uh, it's the quadrennium, which means that, uh, the elections are on all the statewide elections, all the local elections, all that stuff's going on. And we wanted to make sure that we were bringing you uh, all of the candidates that are running for, uh, the major statewide offices, which is United States Senate and the gubernatorial challengers, um, so that you can get to know them and then also doing uh, legislative coverage. Uh, we think, you know, one of the biggest problems that we have in Alabama with our legislation is that the people don't know what's going on. And so we want to educate you so that you guys can get involved. So uh, we'll be continuing on with that. Um, hopefully we'll be able to do it in an entertaining and engaging fashion. Uh, but before we jump in, uh, as always, got to tell you, go to um, on, on wherever it is that you get your podcast, specifically the best places to go are going to be Spotify, Apple podcasts, and YouTube. Um, leave us a five-star review, uh, like us, follow us, all the stuff that you do, uh, to make sure that, um, you know, we're getting to you turn on the notification so that you know, when there's a new podcast, tell your friends, uh, all that. Uh, and also, um, go to 1819news.com, sign up for the newsletter. That's a real big one because, um, this allows us to get to you without any algorithm or social media interference. It's us delivering, uh, essentially delivering the newspaper to your doorstep every morning at 745. We'll come into your inbox. It's got all the news you need to know for the day. It's got the opinion pieces. It's got the feature stories. It's got the uh, podcasts that we've done, the daily detail, and any of the other podcasts we've done uh, delivered to your inbox so that you don't have to go anywhere but there uh, to figure out what's going on in the great state of Alabama. So, I think that covers it, and uh, that's about all the time we have today. Yeah, and that's so, about all the yeah. time we have, so we're, we're done now. Um, well, as, as you can see, and I think I went out of order in my, my normal opening, uh, my, my co-host is back. Um, we, we joked when Andrea was sitting in. It's like, we know this is 2022. Ray didn't go off the wagon. That's not Ray. That's Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> Just got to clarify these days, right. you know? Yeah, you never know. Um, so, no, well, Ray, welcome back. Glad to have you back. Yeah, it's good to be back in here. I know you guys did a great job last week. I'm envious. I would have loved to have been part of the conversations with uh, Dean Odell and Lindy Blanchard. Uh, you did a good job with those, and I encourage people that didn't hear them that want to know more about the people who are running for office to go back and watch those. So uh hate that. Had other business had to take care of, but you guys did a great job. Well, thank you. I uh, very in- enjoyed both of them thoroughly, and uh, the one with Dean is, interestingly enough, it is our highest-rated podcast so far, right? And so he, um, he's got a great handle on the issues, knows how to communicate them well, and, and not scared to go places that others aren't. Lindy did a great job as well. Um, she's got... um really good ideas and, and our finger on the pulse of what's going on. And so they, they were both really, really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good. And we, you know, of course we've had Mike Durant, we've had uh, Dave Thomas, we've had others still hoping to get a few more people that are running for statewide office as well. There's only one more and they agreed to come on. So we'll be having Katie Britt here in the next couple of weeks. That'll be great. Uh, bringing her in uh, to tell you guys why she should be the next United States Senator. So with all of that, we'll jump into today's episode. Um, you know, really one of the things that we're kind of doing, Alabama is a Republican supermajority, and so we're just going to maybe touch on some of the stuff that would land on the Republican Party platform. Well, you know, and the, the legislature ends in theory this week. Uh, some people feel like it, it may uh, uh, stretch on to a few extra days, but I think most people are ready. They're ready to get out of Montgomery, and I think most of them are ready for us, or, or most of us are ready for them to get out of Montgomery yeah, as well. Go on, get. And, uh, you know, a lot of conversation. I think it was a much more um, interesting session than most people thought it would be because it's an election year. We didn't think there'd be a whole lot of controversial subjects. And yet at the end of the day, for all the 
really interesting bills that were talked about, the real interesting topics that were talked about. Very little of the interesting stuff was done. Yeah. Uh, and that's just disappointing. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely, <clears throat> typically how it works is in a quadrennium, which is where all the elections are taking place, you don't see um, dramatic legislative sessions, but not this year. Uh, yeah. It was wild. It was exciting. Um, you know, we definitely got some conservatives when I say we conservatives got a couple of wins, you know, which is more than we ever get. So, you know, there's almost room to celebrate, but the other side of, you know, where there wasn't wins is, is certainly overwhelming as well. But, um, you know, we take the W's where we can, uh, you know, and it's incremental movement, but I do think we saw some progress and I do think we saw some, uh, I think we were able to shine some light on some things that we know that got attention yeah. and, and even affected some change. And I think that's what good reporting is, is supposed to do. Our goal is really at 1819 News is just to present straightforward information with as little bias as possible to, to of what's going on. And and I think we're the – I know we're the only news site that has two uh, legislative reporters who are down there every time the legislature's in session in Brandon Mosley and Craig Monger – I think they're doing a really good job. At one yeah. time, there were 10 to 12 reporters covering that on a daily basis. Uh, it's down to just a handful. And I'm I'm proud of the fact that we've got the, the biggest staff uh, down there of any news organization, even though two is not really enough. Yeah. No, it's a lot. Um, and, I mean, it, I was kind of inundated is the feeling I get when I walk into the state house and just see all the stuff that's going on. So, yeah, yeah those guys are doing a great job. And um, we're, we're excited to continue to grow and, and, and do better as we – uh, cover that. So education is first up, obviously, um, education matters, you know, um, you can't really even, you can't place a value on it, but they keep moving that value up with the way they spend their money. (laughs) They keep trying, they keep trying, but you know, education does matter. And it brings into a lot of questions, you know, how, how can a society fix what's going on in education? We're 52nd math, like 47th and reading or something like that. Either way, we're, we're, we're battling for bottom of the barrel um, to, to be as bad as we can possibly be in Alabama in education. You know, you talk to some people and they have their reasons for why that is. Others, you know, at the end of the day, we continue to have record budgets and record spending in education. We continue to get worse. Uh, and I think that's problematic. And it seems like, you know, they can assuage their consciences by throwing money at it. And they're like, well, what else do you want us to do? We're giving you money. And and unfortunately, that seems to be the big government answer to everything is always throw money at it. And, you know, the, the thing about rankings is is uh, if you've got 50 states, somebody will always be 50th. Yeah. If the differences between 50 and 25 and 25 and 1 are not great, you can kind of live with being 50th. But we're far behind, and, yeah. and and even behind where we were 15 years ago when we were actually making progress in reading and math uh, in the early 2000s, and somehow that has fallen away. Uh, and I think that's one of those things that we saw. We keep pointing back to the Virginia election, Virginia election, and how uh, education concerns got people motivated. Nothing gets people more fired up than their kids, yeah. and uh, I think that's one of the things that we've we've tried to uh, educate Alabamians on. I think there are a lot of frustrations among people uh, out there. We know that that school choice, for instance, is a very popular uh, topic among Alabamians. I think it's seventy-three to eighty percent of people, depending on what poll, favor uh, more school choice, uh, and yet our legislators seem to just completely ignore that. I, I, and I'm. I don't blame the AEA for fighting it. They want to protect public schools. That's what they exist to do is protect public schools. But I also think it only makes public schools better when there's competition like that. But again, what started off as a very exciting bill that Senator Dale Marsh had introduced to really, uh, let's remember, it was that, that would free families to take five to $6,000 of the tax money they pay anyway that goes toward education to pull that back out and use it for whatever school, whether it's homeschool, charter school, private school, of their choice to better their kids' education. I can't think of much that would be more fair than that. Um, but it got watered down to the fact that it's almost unrecognizable, and it went back and forth until I think the best we can hope for is that in some more rural counties, they're allowing some parents to take money to go to charter schools in that county which probably don't exist because there's only seven charter schools in the state, and most of them are not in the counties that need them the most, where the people are looking for the most help. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's it's sad. Um, I was I was really you know I did that weird thing where I got my hopes up and felt stupid afterwards when uh, Del Marsh introduced that bill. It was it was a really great bill, and I think it could have had us leading in the realm of um, introducing legislation that really helps and, and introduces competition. And, and no, school choice doesn't solve all the problems, but it solves a bunch of it. And so you know we we need to continue to figure out other solutions for maybe rural places where there isn't choices to go to school and things you know, like that. And, and here's the thing, like you and I, I, I live in, in Jefferson County, uh, Vestavia, Alabama, great school system. Uh, and if I choose to go somewhere else, I've got the financial weatherall, you know, wherewithal to do that. I also uh, am in a community that has good representation, and I can I can fight that battle. But in the areas where the worst schools are, those people you typically don't have the financial ability to put their take their kid out of whatever school they're in and put them into a private school. And they also are working so hard they don't have contact with the legislators. They don't have representation in Montgomery. Therefore, the representation in Montgomery is all about the AEA and their forty four lobbyists. So it really does hurt the the poorest and most vulnerable and the people that need the most help. Let's be honest. If you live in, in Mountain Brook or, or, or parts of, of Montgomery or parts of Mobile and parts of Huntsville, you, you can, you know, you can take care of your kids. You can do what needs to be done to give them the best education, but it's the ones that are in uh, more rural areas or in the worst neighborhoods of Birmingham, Montgomery, Huntsville, and Mobile that have the least choice. Yeah. And, and those are the ones I think just get left behind time and time again with so much stuff. And we'll talk some more about other things that could really help the most vulnerable and susceptible people of Alabama and the legislature just does nothing. Yeah. It's the people that it affects most that know the least of what's going on yeah. in Montgomery. Right? And, and, and and again, because they're working the hardest. Yeah. I mean, they're just trying to survive day to day. Yeah, paycheck so They paycheck. don't have the time to, to say, Hey, let's go down and and lobby our congressman today. So yeah. it's just you know it, it doesn't work that way. So school choice uh, is essentially dead. Uh, there was hope for about eighteen hours, and <laughs> it started getting yeah. neutered <laughs> uh, into basically it's nothing now. Um, the numeracy act. This has been a very controversial bill. Uh, I am not so familiar with it that I just know it in in and out like some of the legislation I know that you and I have really had our eyes on and, and have become very familiar with. This one has been the the most peculiar to me because essentially the part that sticks out to me the most is that we're giving 900 million, so that's with an M, 900 million, so it might as well be 1 billion, okay? We're we're giving nearly one billion dollars. It's like the, you know, on sale for nine ninety nine. Yeah, so exactly. You don't say 10. Yeah, exactly. So nine hundred million dollars, nearly a billion dollars. We're going to be paying coaches to come in and coach our teachers, so that we can teach our teachers with a coach on how to teach. Follow that and give those teachers a raise who are not teaching math very well, and yet we're going to reward them with an ongoing at least 4% to 1% raise uh, in perpetuity, I guess, uh, perpetuity. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And again, you know, we'll go back to when Alabama was actually making progress. One of the ways they did that was in reading, was to have reading coaches in every school that sat down with kids in their off break time or or whatever and helped coach them, coach the kids. Didn't, Didn't replace the teacher. It just augmented what the teachers were doing. To me, that's a perfect model for math. And yet what we're saying is, no, our teachers don't really know how to teach math well, despite what our schools are teaching them. And they're raising a coach. Yes. I mean, so basically it's saying, hey, University of Alabama or Auburn or Samford or Birmingham Southern, you're not doing a good job teaching these teachers how to teach. We're going to have to go hire professionals and supplement what you didn't do, which if I'm a university administrator, I'm fairly offended at that. But um Anyway, it's just, it, it, it just boggles the mind. And I'm, listen, I, I, our teachers are well paid. We're, we're among the highest paid starting salaries of teachers anywhere in the South. Is it enough? We know that teachers are still leaving the profession for better making jobs in the p- private sector. And I get that. I, I do think teachers need to be paid what they're worth. But it's also just sort of the mixed signals that you get out of Montgomery just drive me crazy. There's yeah. no consistency. And think if, um, say, private schools came in and figured out a way to actually like help kids read in their reading classes and help kids yeah. do math in their math classes, and some private you know institution figured out a way that they could actually teach children and those children would actually thrive and they would actually flourish and they would actually be educated, like those teachers could make tons of money over to school like that, right? And if, if there was school choice. So you say... 
one, you know, you pop one up right next to a failing school or something that's really close to a failing school. Um, they actually have discipline. They actually have good teaching and all those type of things. And those kids are able to bring their $6,300 or whatever, you know, their family, $6,300 mm-hmm. per kid uh, over there. And then, you know, there's no bureaucratic redundancy of all these, you know, superintendents and bureaucrats and everything else, which every time they dump, you know, a billion dollars into the system, all that happens is that redundancy gets bigger and then the money never makes it down. Right. And so if you remove that bureaucratic redundancy and you have a, an institution that's just dedicated to serving and educating and doing what it's supposed to do, and it doesn't have that redundancy, um, that that money's going to go to the people who are doing the job, which is the educators. And, and really, it's the it's 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 capitalism, free enterprise at its best. If I create a private school, uh, I'm only answerable to the, the the people that invest in my private school, which are the parents. If they're paying, if they withdraw their kid, I'm not going to stay in business. There's no government bureaucracy. There's no private schools. There are private school associations, but they're not like boards of education. Uh, And we've seen it in like New York and New Orleans where charter schools and private schools popped up and have really changed the educational outcome for the kids in those areas. Uh, And I know um, uh, you and I've talked about this before. My wife and I with another couple started a homeschool co-op, even though, as I said, we lived in Vestavia, which is one of the great school systems in the, in the, in the state, in the country. Uh, and what we found were hiring teachers to come in and teach. So many people were even college professors or former public school teachers who were passionate about wanting to teach in a certain way that they were not allowed to teach anymore. And the results that we got were phenomenal. I mean, our kids got scholarship money to Vanderbilt and Furman and military academies and, and you know, good schools. So it's not like we were producing uh, dumbed-down kids. These yeah. kids were excelling. And it has to do with teachers being able to be free to teach the way they think it ought to be best. And if the teacher didn't do a good job, we had the ability to go, hey, this isn't, the results aren't there. We need a better teacher. But again, it's when you allow some freedom in the classroom, freedom in individual schools to set standards and pursue those standards and not be beholden to some sort of statewide a system of success that just doesn't add up. Yeah. It's a lot like the medical problem that we're having, you know, with COVID, everything was a bureaucratic, like you have to do it this way yeah. in and down from on high. And then there's doctors that are sitting here at the, at the, you know, doctor patient level saying, Hey, no, we should be doing this. And they're like, no, you can't do that. And so <laughs> and, once again, the bureaucrats, um, and you almost feel like that. I don't want to get off on the COVID thing, but you make a great point that, you know, if you do have a doctor that says, Listen, I really do think I can give you this other drug and it'll work better. Just don't tell anybody. Yeah. It's like you're in a back alley somewhere, yeah. you know, with a doctor going, hey, I can get you some ivermectin, but please don't tell anybody yeah. that I did this. That'll be the school is like, I'm going to teach you how to read, yeah. but don't tell anybody. Listen, we, we have these things called the times tables. It's worked for 100 years, but please don't go around reciting this to other people. Yeah, you're going to get me fired. Yeah. They found out I taught you how to read and do math. Yeah. It's over for me. And, and so, yeah, just to, to go on a little bit, we were talking about the Numeracy Act and the Literacy Act. Um so, you know, the Literacy Act was the other side. That was going to be this great measure that if kids could not read at a proficient level by the third grade, they would have to repeat the third grade. Yeah. Of course, COVID came in and kids had to learn, you know, go home and and uh, suffered. I think Eric Mackey even said, uh, you know, they lost almost a full year's worth of education of, of meeting standards. So, again, our great solution, let's just put off that measurement for a couple of years and just see how they do. So, uh, what we're saying is you poor third graders that can't read at a third grade level, we're going to go ahead and pass you off to the fourth grade level uh, where you still can't read at a third grade level. And those fourth grade teachers can't do fourth grade work because they've got to back up and do third and second grade work because we just don't want to embarrass anybody, I guess, by holding them back for a year. That goes back to us having such a feelings-based decision-making paradigm, period. And like everything we do, it's the participation trophy culture. Um, and at some point, like, you know, it was America at one time too hard nosed and didn't, you know, care about people's feelings. I don't know, but we were doing pretty well then, yeah. you know? And so, you know, and, and I do think that a lot of that is like femininity creep creeping in. Um, and again, this is, but, but by nature, women are more, you know, nurturing and they yeah, care about careful. your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> people, people watching might not watch anymore if I go too far here. No, but, um, but I do think that, that by nature, women are more caring, nurturing, and want to make sure that people's feelings are being, you know, considered and things like that. And men are performance driven. We just are like, Hey, we're looking for this. And I think, uh, a lot of feminism and other things, it's crept in, in a lot of other areas. And then that, that kind of emotional, you know, um, they, well, we want to give them a trophy because if they don't get a trophy, that'll hurt their feelings. And, and then men are like, well, they should have practiced and fought a little harder, yeah. you know? 
And so I think that's something that's just kind of polluting and corrupting. And, and, and we're seeing that in the education where it's like, well, if we hold those children back, it's going to hurt their feelings. Like, well, not being able to read when they graduate is going to hurt a whole lot more. Yeah. Uh, and I know, again, uh, public school education from uh, outside of Atlanta, East Point, Georgia, Fulton County school system. Uh, I had an eighth grade, one of my best friends. He could drive. He had his driver's license. Well, that means he was 16 years old in the eighth grade. But you know what? He, he had trouble doing the work. And I, he finally, you know, he got on track and he graduated and he was a little older than the rest of us, obviously. But he got there and then he could go on and be successful at whatever he was doing. And yeah, there was embarrassment. But Failure ought to bring a little embarrassment. And and the worst embarrassment ought to be self-induced. It ought to be me going, hey, I'm really embarrassed that I didn't do a good enough job. Somebody help me do better and catch up. And would you rather fail a grade than fail at life? And I guess yeah. what I'm saying, so the odds, so when, when you don't let them feel that burn in third grade and that, that twinge of embarrassment that maybe causes them to actually dig in and fight a little harder and actually pass, they say, you know, statistically, if you don't learn to read at a third grade level by third grade, which is, I think, why third grade is the focus, you can see a trajectory of basically people who right. can't goes like this and people who can goes like this. And so I don't know if you guys could catch any of that. <laughs> so this, but ultimately, you know, that as, as that line is going, if you can't read in third grade, your future statistically is like that. But if you have learned how to read by the third grade, you actually have a chance at making it great commercial that was repeated too many times during the NCAA tournament of one of those mindless AT&T commercials. I think it was, but it was uh, a bell, um, the, the basketball player. And I can't think of his first name, but uh, ball, I'm sorry, not bell ball. And he's standing there at the AT&T store and he's looking up at the wall going, man, I'm going to work hard and I'm going to put in the extra hours and I'm going to really sacrifice. And one day I'm going to be on there and they're thinking, you mean the NBA? And he goes, no, it's the employee of the month. It's a funny little deal. And then his father comes by and goes, that's my boy. There's nothing he can't do. It's a funny message, but what the guy's really saying is, I've worked harder. I've put in more time. And if you do that, you have success. And it's that's the what we think of as the American way. Is, yeah. yeah, if you want to get there, you got to work harder. you got to outwork the next guy. And you've got to push to be successful. And, and somehow we're telling kids, well, you didn't quite work hard enough and you didn't put in the extra hours, but you know, we don't want you to be embarrassed about it. So we're going to go ahead and move you on up, even though you're going to be falling further and further behind. And and what it is, it's the same thing as putting masks on children. It's, it's doing harm to children to make the adults feel better. Yeah. Right. You're harming children to make the adults feel better. Like we know those masks don't work. That's why the adults ain't wearing them. You yeah. know what I mean? You go anywhere and the adults aren't wearing them, but the kids are. Yeah. And they're making the kids do it because they want to feel better about what they're doing with the kids. And so they harm children so that they feel better. And so here they are passing children so that they feel better because they didn't want to hurt their feelings. Or the parents don't want the embarrassment of, well, yeah, I know my son's not going into the fourth grade this year. He's being held back. Well, it is embarrassing, but it should be embarrassing. Yeah. And, and and sometimes that kid just needs help. It, the more important thing, uh, again, I struggled with math. That's why I was a journalism major. I didn't have to take a whole lot of math. But one summer, my parents said, hey, we're going to go down to this educational lab and see if you can't take classes to do better at math so you can pass. That's, you know, they, they didn't want the embarrassment of their kid, you know, failing. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you do what you have to do. But, yeah, there is embarrassment, and embarrassment's a great motivator. Most of the great athletes, and I always come back to athletic images because that was most of my life, it's not they want to win, it's they hate losing. Yeah. And, and that hate, hatred and fear of losing is what drives them to become winners. And I think that's a great motivator even – I don't want to be embarrassed, so I'm going to not do – uh, I'm going to do better so I'm not embarrassed at whatever I, I was embarrassed about. Yeah. And some of it, too, is I think kind of putting your thumb on the scale in the sense of our society is trying to, you know, we hear the word equality. We, you know, we hear the word, you know, uh, land of opportunity, uh, equal equality. And we we jump to our society has very recently, I'd say in the last 10 years or so, we've jumped to equality of outcomes rather than equality of opportunity. And there's no way to give equality of outcomes. That's not possible. That's the whole thing. But, you know, we can move closer and more towards equal opportunity. There will never be equal opportunity. I grew up in a broken home. Um, I had multiple stepdads. I, my mother was a drunk, right? I, I mean, like, I did not have a great upbringing, right? So I could claim a lot of the, you know, the, the victim and the this and the that. And I made a bunch of terrible, horrible, poor decisions in my life. Uh, that led me down a really bad path. And then I eventually said, you know what? I'm sitting down about as low in society as you can possibly get. And I had to just start taking responsibility for the things that I'd done. 
and say, okay, I'm no matter where I am, America is going to give me the opportunity to rise out of this place that I am. And so that's where the equal opportunity is, is every single person in the United States has the opportunity to look themselves in the mirror and say, you know what, today I'm going to start taking responsibility for the decisions that I'm going to make. And today I'm going to take a step forward. And in five years, 10 years, who knows where I can be? Because, you know, quite frankly, what, what I've been able to accomplish, some of the people know my story, um, is not possible in a lot of other places. Right. And, but it is here. And so it's because that opportunity was there for me as well as it is, uh, for countless other people, but no one wants to hear that anymore. Yeah. And, uh, we can do this whole thing of, of opportunity and, 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 and what you describe is the difference between equality and equity. And everybody's a great proponent of equity, which is everybody having the same thing, regardless of whether they've earned it or not, as opposed to equality, which is everybody has the opportunity to earn whatever it is they want to earn. There's yeah. equal chances. And, and I, yeah, you're right. I mean, I was never going to be a track star. I just can't run fast. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should have identified as a woman and tried it at the women's level. Maybe I'd have been more successful. Yeah. Because, or put on a women's swimming suit. Yeah, yeah and, and, and do that. But uh, anyway, you know, the other <laughs> thing that I think is interesting coming out of this legislative session, uh, I know there's a, a, a bill being considered to um, – uh, to, to help with student loans for math and science teachers that go to rural or underserved areas. And uh, I think that's a, a really good inducement. You know, we hear a lot about the student loan problem. I also know there are federal programs that if you're a teacher and you're willing to go to a underserved area and, and make your payments for 10 years, the federal government will forgive your student loan after 10 years. Uh, in a previous job, I dealt with folks that, but it was amazing to me Um and I, I want to say Bibb County w- w- was probably isn't anymore, but at one time was one of those areas. So you could live in Birmingham and teach in Bibb County for 10 years and get your student loan forgiven. And it was shocking to me how many people complained about their student loan, but they weren't willing to do something to take care of that. I do think the fact that the legislature is considering doubling what they will do to help teachers in math and science with student loans is a good inducement to get people to maybe consider going to some of these areas. But at the end of the day, I don't think teachers are leaving school so much because of lack of pay as it's because of frustration of not being allowed to teach the way that they've been taught to teach. And the behavioral issues. And again, so we talked about that's this on part of Joey it, yeah. Clark's radio show. Uh, there was a teacher that called in. It was a, a good heated exchange. Um, but ultimately, you know, we're, we're, we're chopping at leaves and not roots when we start talking about education. What it boils down to is the, the, the problem is a family problem. Problem's a household problem. And so you have children who don't have healthy households, uh, children who don't have fathers, children who don't have, aren't going to church, children who aren't, you know, whatever, all these indicators that show that it's going to be healthy. And then they're dumped off at this place with a whole bunch of other people who don't have fathers. And, and, you know what I mean? And then there's no discipline, there's no behavior, there's no obedience, there's no rigor whatsoever. Um, And then these teachers are basically told to go in there and, you know, make something, you know, out of that. And they're like, you know, it's extremely and, frustrating. And not only that, but teach them sex education and yeah. teach them about drug awareness and teach them stuff that really ought to <laughs> those be Those kids could probably be teaching those <laughs> the yeah. teachers about. Uh, you know, things. I've, again, we're off on a tangent here, but I, I know a, a family that was really having trouble with their teenage son and alcohol, and he wasn't old enough to drink. Uh, drinking age is 21. It was 18 when I was in high school. I don't drink, so it doesn't a factor for me. But he said, you know, we finally... We bought a breathalyzer so that when he came home on Friday night, we could test him. And I said, why do you even let him go out? If yeah. you're that concerned about him drinking, then I would say, hey, son, you're staying home tonight. We're going to stay home and watch a movie and play games and have fun and be a family, but we just don't trust you enough to let you go out. The response was, well, then my wife and I can't go out. I'm like, you're raising a child. What's more important here? And it just, again, we've just got confused ideas of what parenting is and what our children our responsibility to those children are. But that's, that was, and this was a well uh, to do family. I mean, it that had every opportunity in a very good school system and their solution for their alcohol problem was, well, we're just going to test him. Yeah. <laughs> I just shake my head. Yeah. You know? And another one you hear is, well, we just want our kids to be, able, we don't want to steal their childhood from them. We don't want, it's like, yeah. No, yeah, I, anyway, I, yeah, this is, this is definitely, we need to do that podcast yeah. coming soon um, yeah. about all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on to moving on to tax cuts. That's yeah. much more fun. Um, so uh, yeah. So education overall, um, you know, record budget, we'll get into the education budget was record. Teachers are going to get a raise. 
uh, school choice is dead. Numeracy Act. You know, the one thing that, that we didn't cover on the Numeracy Act, I know a lot of people who are in the know that are really conservative that believe very strongly that, you know, so like the bill opens with, you know, this is going to rid Alabama of Common Core. But the biggest proponents that are fighting against Common Core and have been for the last 10 or 15 years are saying that this bill is actually hiring coaches to come coach teachers on how to teach Common Core math because the standard isn't any different. And so I don't know those arguments. I just know that I know a lot of people that I know and trust believe very strongly that this bill is not getting rid of Common Core, that it's actually pushing it for, farther forward. I've, I've sat down with Danny Garrett and Danny Garrett showed me all kinds of documentation that that's not the case. Arthur Orr is saying that that's not the case. I don't know. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's been an interesting controversy and fight. <clears throat> um, yeah, I wish I knew more about it. Um, and that's one that I, I obviously need to look into a little bit more, but, um, but it's not your concern because you've put your kids into a good private school where they're getting taught math uh, a good way. Yes, classical. Uh, yeah. And actually, one of my one of my kids goes to uh, a classical Christian school in Montgomery, and the rest of my children are homeschooled. Okay, well, yeah. And so um, I'll, I'll just end with that because yeah. I want to go on a tangent, so I'll just leave that one alone. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's enough about that. <laughs> So that covers education. Now I guess we'll move into tax cuts. So again, we're talking about Republican Party platform because we have a Republican supermajority that you'd think that this would be the things you're like, okay, here's the party platform. We're Republicans. We have a Republican supermajority. Let's just start moving down and checking these boxes and we'll be doing our jobs. Yeah. But that doesn't happen. It's, uh, it is so frustrating to, to, for, to, to watch a Republican Party that's supposed to be the, the party of small government uh, of, of more individual freedom, and yet in this state, that supermajority, as you pointed out, is passing record budget after record budget, and even now in a state with a massive surplus, still cannot let go of a dime to, to, to leave it in people's pockets that earned that money the hard way. Um, again, there were proposal after proposal, states all around us that are getting rid of state personal income tax because they understand the states that don't have personal income tax, the population's booming, growing. Mississippi really made a strong run at that because they know that other states and population are leaving them behind. Um, and yet, and it would it would be a, a, a relatively minuscule amount of money that the state would lose, actually just not collect, but, but doesn't even come close to what the, the surplus is. Uh, it's just frustrating to me that our... our Conservative Republican politicians down there just keep increasing the size of government by making it bigger and bigger and spending more money and taking more money out of our pockets. Yeah, no, it is. It's um, it's really insane uh, when when you think about it. Record budget after record budget in a Republican supermajority, super conservative state. Not only does it grow in taxes, which means they're taking more of our money, it grows in its size and scope and ability to do things to us that we don't want the government yeah. doing to us. The regulations are getting more, not less. Um, and so what that means is when you end up with a huge, and again, it doesn't matter if it's a Republicans, you know, unchecked Republican growth or unchecked Democratic growth, doesn't matter. The government's growing. Yeah. doesn't matter if it's under Republicans, doesn't matter if it's under Democrats. The government is growing. And when the, the government grows, the people become more and more oppressed. There's less freedom. Where there's less freedom, there's less flourishing. Um it becomes less and less hospitable environment for business, small businesses, big businesses, whatever. Um, government is not the friend of the people. It's a necessary evil, essentially, is what our founders talked about. You know, um, it's it's something that's necessary. It's there. I think the you know government is instituted by God, and it's there to do certain things. And we've we've then now turned our government into a god and worship at, at the altar of our civil magistrate, and it's controlling all kinds of areas of our lives that it has no business being in. And, and we continue to allow it and it continues to grow year after year after year. Well, and the, the simple truth is that the more I worry about how much of my paycheck goes to the government, the less inclined I am to either spend or invest into something that might produce more of the economy. We saw this under the Trump administration by reducing regulations or not really reducing, just getting rid of duplications and making it simpler that suddenly businesses expanded. They were willing to invest their money. When the, the, the current president, Joe Biden, came in and those registration uh, uh, regulations came back into enforce, 
they quit expanding. Uh, they quit investing. And I think that's true even at a local level. I know, uh, I, you know, hey, you get a raise. I just got a, you know, a, a whatever percent raise. And then you look at it and realize, but I just lost more than that to the government, which is taking more of my money. I've got to hold on to my money. I yeah. can't afford to to go out and spend it or invest it or or help my neighborhood grocer keep his business going yeah. by spending more money there. And I think it's interesting just the way that things are set up. I had a friend who I didn't of, just get a raise, by the way, but yeah. I'll talk to Brian about yeah. this afterwards. <laughs> I, I see, I see the writing on the wall. Um, I had a friend who went from making somewhere kind of in the 60 to $80,000 a year range. And he, you know, made some moves, took some risks, you know, invested, um, opened an LLC and did some side work and all this other stuff. And I mean, worked his tail off. And he made like 120, 130 a year, right? So he did all this. And he went from like, would have got like a $6,000 tax refund to owing $8,000. Yeah. So it's like a $14,000 hit he just took for for risk-taking and innovating and growing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, holy cow. So, I mean, it's crazy. So there, there's not a lot of incentive in those structures for people to take risks, to invest, to, you know, anyway. But we can and, go and on and And, you on. know, we can, and I know it's a dirty word, but that's one of the things about big government and we go, oh, they don't pay their taxes. Well, they do pay taxes, but there are tax breaks, which are there to incentivize those businesses to expand and hire more people and produce more for the, for the economy. So there is a reason for that kind of thing to reward successful people or reward people that take chances and, and hopefully then hire and, and improve the lives of the people that work for them. So, yeah. so you, I, we lose sight of that sometimes. Yeah. And so you, that's the, and anytime there's a billionaire anywhere, you know, the left immediately goes into class warfare yep. because the left is made up of Marxists and Marxists are always trying to separate black versus white men versus women, straight versus gay, um, you know, rich versus poor. They're trying to create class warfare and then they always have the oppressor and then the oppressed. And then they get all the oppressed classes and they turn them into a voting block and then they vote against, right? It's a total <clears throat> power grab, but you know, anytime that there's a billionaire who's doing well, the left immediately begins to try and create class warfare and throw rocks at these people, despite them being job creators and philanthropic and all this other stuff. But, you know, you take Elon Musk, for instance, um, you know, depending on what day it is, him or Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, richest man in the history of the world. Say, oh, he's not paying his fair share of taxes. And it's like, that man has created more jobs. Yeah. And so for every single job you create, you have a person who's now making money, who's going to be spending and money taxes. and paying taxes. Yeah. Right. And, and so on and on and on it goes. And it's like, you know, maybe he's not personally paying as much as, you know, but look at, look at what his business is doing. Look at the jobs he's creating. Look at the tax base that he's created through his risk-taking and innovation. And how much worse off would the country be without those businesses that those two men created? Yeah. I mean, you can yell at Walmart and, and the damage is done to the small mom yeah. and pop store. And I get that. I, I agree with that. But at the same time, what Sam Walton did was make stuff affordable to the average person that, yeah. that was of a reasonable quality, but certainly an affordable product and, yeah. and deserved everything he got because he took the chances of putting Walmarts out there all over the country and expanding them and growing with them. I don't begrudge the Walton family anything for what they've earned. They took a chance. Yep. So and provided a service. Yeah. You know. And it's um, kind of the double edged sword. Yeah. The American dream. And then as soon as you achieve the American dream, you're like, you know, Income inequality, you know, yeah. and, and class warfare. And, and yeah, maybe you could pay people more, but that's, again, I think that's up to workers can decide, well, I don't think I'm being pay, paid fairly. And right now in this market, and we see it, people don't stay in jobs very long. You can go somewhere and get paid better. Uh, a friend of mine who said, I just can't hire people to do this work. I said, well, if you paid more, you probably would. And he went, yeah, you're right, but how much more can I afford to pay? And that's yeah. that balance all businesses. I don't think businessmen necessarily, by and large, there are, exam uh, 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 there are exceptions, want to abuse the pay of their workers. But I think they, like everybody else, they're trying to make sure the, the business can be profitable and continue to grow and hire more people. Um, so it's, it's, that, it's that battle that's out there. But again... Uh, I did a study, I read a study, and this was probably 10 years ago, Stanford University put it out there. And I've talked to local McDonald franchise owners, and this, they say this is true, that um, an average McDonald worker is not there a year. They go in there to get a work record to then get a better job. They said, oh, no, our turnover rate in the course of a year is well over 100% because it's not designed to be a career. You're not supposed to be there to take care of your family. You're supposed to be there to get work experience and then go on to a better job than that. And so yeah. I don't fault the McDonald's people for, for what they're doing. I think they do a great service of getting people into the workforce and then helping them move on to the next job. Yep. 
Well, we went way off there. And I, I'll right. say this too about Amazon. Uh, you know, the, the, the Bessemer plant here in Alabama, uh, they tell you, they don't expect most of the workers to be there within a year. Uh, and, and in fact, if you work there a year, they will help you go to community college and learn a better skill to make more money than what you're making at Amazon. So that, again, they're really designed, except for those they keep in the system, but they really design their setup to come in, work for us a year, and then go on and do better than whatever it is you're doing. Um, yeah. I, I actually think that's a really good, if I'm just starting out, I've only got maybe a high school diploma or GED and I can work there for a year and then they'll pay me to go to a community college and learn welding or plumbing or electricity or something else. That's, that seems like a, a really good trade-off to me. Yeah. And and that's what it boils down to again, the, the participation trophy culture of equal opportunity versus equal outcomes. Everyone wants to start and make $15 an hour. And it's like, well, I think a lot of places are happy to pay people $15 an hour if it's worth it. And in order to be worth it, you have to go and acquire a skill set and have some experience that makes it worth it. Um, and people always lose sight of that. Well, you can't support your family on this. And it's like, okay, you know, I remember when, when I started out uh, in media, I made, I mean, nothing, right? My wife made more money than me. And then we started having kids and she wanted to come home. And I mean, we, we made nothing. And I was basically forced to sharpen my skill set you know, take opportunities, take risks, do things, try and learn, learn everything I possibly could read every book I could possibly read mm -hmm. and get better. And then, then you're paid what you're worth. And if you're worth more, you'll get paid more. Yeah. So it's just a concept that's lost because of all this, you know, uh, it's cool to be a victim. Like I don't get paid enough. I, anyway, we, we got to get through, um, tax cuts. So that's what we're you know, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I know we only have a little bit left. I'd really like, kind of like to switch over to political races unless you've got something you're just burning that you want to talk about. Yeah, well, so let's just look at, so tax cuts, budgets, and then yeah. gambling. And we'll just hit those boom, boom, boom. So tax cuts, ultimately there was a gro grocery tax bill that was introduced by Mike Holmes that that, that is going to die, um, never got looked at. We, we talk about what is going to kind of help the, the average Alabamian who's living paycheck to paycheck, barely getting by. The tax cut, or excuse me, the grocery tax relief would help them tremendously, right? Everybody, right. It helped, and that, that would be 4%. I think it's a 4% cut for the state. Yeah. It doesn't remove city or county grocery taxes yeah. that may be there, but that's a 4% tax across the board for everybody. That yeah. in, a, in a $200 grocery bill, which is what groceries are costing now, that's yeah. a fairly significant saving. Yeah, it's a way to put money back in every Alabamian's pockets, which... Um, and let's put a pin in that. And then so income tax, um, those states all around us are, are, are lowering and getting rid of their income, you know, income tax uh, not happening here. Gas tax repeal. We've got a gas tax that continues to grow. KIV laughed at the the idea of possibly, you and know, blamed putting it, it on President Biden. Yeah, yeah. Putting it. We've got states all around us that are putting caps on it, saying, hey, until gas prices go down, we're just going to put yeah. a cap on this. She laughed when that was, in, you know, brought up. And then the business privilege tax. So then, we, you know, you go into that idea of. I'm, I'm a risk taker and an innovator. I'm going to create an LLC so that I can go out here and find creative ways to make money, um, which means I'm going to be paying into the tax base. So I, if you own an LLC, you know that you pay taxes. Um, and so what do they do? They hit you with a business privilege tax. You have the privilege of having a business in yeah. the state of Alabama, $100 minimum, yeah. right? And so, um, yeah, that, that needs to go away, uh, and it's and not. The other side of that is licensing. Yeah. Uh, so many people that want to start a business, but they've, they, they've got to go get a license. They may have to do an apprenticeship. And uh, most of that's just a way to control or, or get more money and yeah. keeping people from getting into businesses and taking care of themselves. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And it's like, so, and again, I don't know if it's this way everywhere. I think it probably is. But the Board of Cosmetology, okay, yeah, like this is the one the that just drives me just absolutely yeah. nuts. Because I'm sitting there getting my hair cut and I see, you know, the person who cuts my hair, and they've got their big giant license to cut hair. Yeah. I'm like, if there was ever a place like where the market would decide, like I sit out in the chair, she messes my hair up. Guess what? I'm not coming yeah. back. Not that big a deal. Right. Yeah. But they have to be licensed. And, 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 and here's where it becomes a big problem. So COVID comes. Okay. And they say, you need to shut down your haircutting place. And you're like, well, I can't feed my family. Your little $200 a month stimulus check or whatever it was that they did or PPP loan. That's not going to feed my family. I need to work to earn money and people need their haircut and people need whatever well, if you cut anybody's hair, we're going to take your license. And yeah. then so it's it's an instant way for the government to, to, to be able to basically whip you into submission uh, is with these licenses. And so occupational licensing is a huge thing that we need to probably do a whole episode on that. But yeah, so taxes and, and regulations uh, on the Republican Party platform and Republican supermajority, I always remind that's why we go to that. Tax Taxes should be getting cut. 
regulations should be getting cut and all they're doing is growing. Um, so that's no good budgets. Um, real quick hit on this and we'll, we'll wrap up with, um, some, some political, uh, stuff, but, or as far as candidacy goes, but, um, budgets, I, th- I think it's really important that we, when I first started trying to learn about state government, um, because that was the whole thing I was involved in, in national media, national politics, national fundraising, all that stuff. And I didn't really know what was going on at the state level. And honestly, didn't even really have a good feel for, you know, federal budgets, but, um, you know, I would talk to people that were in the know and they're like, man, I can't believe that that, you know, supplemental appropriations bill, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no idea what that means. And someone sent me an article that Brandon Mosley did for us. They're like, this is the most important bill that you got, you know, the most important article that you put out and I'm looking at it and it says $1.3 billion supplemental appropriation. I'm like, I didn't even read it. It just yeah. kind of, you know, uh. and I think that is unfortunately a lot of people's attitudes towards budget is just like, Oh, a bunch of numbers. And you know, I can't pay attention but the devil is in the details in those budgets. And even without drilling down and like looking into every penny, just looking at it from just, uh, this is what the supplemental appropriation is. Supplemental means surplus. Okay. And so we had a, a record budget. It was like close to 9 billion in the education trust fund, but that was the budget. Well, they took more than that from us by the, to the tune of 1.3 billion just in that budget alone, then in the general fund, they took another close to 300,000 too much from us. So they took $1.6 billion more from us than they needed. So common sense would be, well, we should give that money back to the people we took it from. No, they do a supplemental appropriations process where they capriciously and whimsically just like hand it out like Oprah. You get some money and you get some money. Everybody gets the money except the people we took it from. You know, and and even the federal government, if I pay too much in taxes in a year and I do my taxes correctly, they send me back what I overpaid. Yeah. You know, we all get that. In fact, I know people that sort of live for that refund check, even though you're better off not overpaying because that puts more month to month. But here our state government, basically we've overpaid our taxes to the tune of, you know, $1.6 billion. $1.6 billion. And they're like, uh, well, let's see. We could give that back to the people we took it from because we don't need it. Oh, no, no, no. That's not a good idea. Let's figure out a different way to keep spending and even get some more. Yeah. And um, and and so you look at, well, how much would it cost to do a grocery tax, right? And so to, to cut the grocery tax would cost like $600 million a year. So with that budget surplus, we could have cut the grocery tax for three years, put money back in everybody's pockets. No, yeah. we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And then I think some of it, there was like 200 million that you said, okay, we're going to use to pay down debt. And they're like, okay. And then, and now come to find out, it's like, just kidding. We're actually going to go build something with it. And it's just like, and again, I I could accept that. I mean, uh, that's not perfect, but at least let's get debt free. Yeah. You know, that's what we do in our family. You get a a bunch of extra money. You go, well, I got a credit card or I got a mortgage or something I can pay down. Not our government, not our state government. And so we could get out of debt. Oh, no, no. Let's just go get into more debt. Yeah crazy prisons. I mean, on and on. Yeah. Yeah. So the moral to that story is pay attention to the budgets. When we write stuff on the budgets, Brandon Mosley does a great job breaking it down. Justin Bogey at the Alabama policy Institute does a great job of breaking it down. Do yourself the service. Again, we talk about freedom is hard. We have to do the hard work to ensure freedom. And the hard work is learning about how our government works because it's our government. It's your government. Like this is our government. So we need to take responsibility for it. We need to take responsibilities for our families. We need to take responsibility for our health and we need to take responsibility for our government, which means we need to educate ourselves and learn and begin to be very intentional in all three of these areas so that the more intentional we are in those areas and the more responsibility we take, the the government will shrink. Because there are people called lobbyists who are down there every day who are sitting in the offices, legislators arguing for what they want. The truth is the average person out here, we don't, our lobbyist is our legislator. We elect him to go down and represent us, but all he's hearing from are special interest groups. And so you get swayed by the people you see every day. So I do encourage people to, when you have the chance, uh, talk to your legislator, to your representative, yeah. tell them what it is that's on your mind, tell them what you'd like to see him do. And to do that, you need to be educated and be aware. Yep. Absolutely. So, um, gambling, um, gambling is dead. Yeah. Gambling is dead. And so they tried it again. Can't believe they tried it during an election year. Uh, the egregiousness of the bill, I think, is can be summed up in one simple thing. I always, like, I joked literally on this podcast, 
that like if a New Jersey mob boss looked at the bill, the mob boss would blush a little bit and be like, these guys are being pretty ambitious, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, geez, the corruption's just hanging out there. Yeah. And so I joked about a New Jersey mob boss, but then comes in Don Siegelman and he's like, man, y'all are being ambitious. This is kind of crazy, right? Yeah. And you're talking about the most corrupt politician ever to walk in the state of Alabama, most likely. Nice guy. I hope at he's least caught. I, yeah, yeah it, it's been caught. There you go. Nice guy. I hope he's changed his ways. Really do. I uh, have no, I don't know much about what's happened since all that stuff but leading up to it you want to talk about someone who was involved in some shady yeah. stuff and he's coming out saying this, this is, gambling yeah. is, this is right corruption here. right here yeah what i did is <laughs> that, nothing that was bad but yeah. this is way bad yeah and uh again i just think it's laughable that our state legislators sit there and go well illegal gambling's going on so let's just legalize it yeah I mean, if you really, again, you think that through and you go, well, there's a whole lot of other illegal stuff going on. And yet I bring this up sort of facetiously. They passed a bill to go after uh, people that are selling tobacco that's not paying their state tax on tobacco. And they're going to shut that down. But illegal gambling, well, you know, it just goes on. Let's figure out how to make that legal. Uh, again, the, the hypocrisy and inconsistencies are what drive me crazy. Yeah, no, it's nuts. And, and we know where the incentives to be hypocritical come from, right? Is the yep. special interest. And so, um, here and here, just to give you the cognitive dissonance on the bill sponsor. So when gambling died this year, this is what Senate is Senator Albritton, right? Yep. Our, yeah, Senator Albritton says, I'm correct on this issue. I know the data up and down. I'm familiar with the industry. I'm familiar with the challenges. I was optimistic because I felt the arguments would win the day, but the money won the day. Really? That, yeah. That's that's what you have to say after this whole thing. And again, I'm reminded of Jesse Smollett when he was convicted and he got his 150-month you know, thing or whatever. Like, do you have anything to say? And he's like, I'm not suicidal. I didn't do it. You know what I mean? It's like, dude, come yeah. on, man. Like, everybody knows. You know what I mean? And like, that, that's that kind of just... Either he's just completely like the the worst cognitive dissonance ever to exist in the history, or he's just acting. And I believe Mr. Albritton represents Atmore, which yeah. happens to have a fairly, and again, his area, gambling, casino, the Port Street, that's a big deal to his part. So yeah. don't necessarily fault him for what, you know, representing his district. But I, I also think that ultimately gambling failed because the two sides were so terrified of each other. The lottery people, you know, they were trying to fight off the casino gambling people, and the casino gambling people didn't like the lottery people, and they, uh, you know, they, they the infighting is what dooms them, and that's fine. I, yeah. I think that's probably better for the state in the long run, anyway. Yeah. So, um, well, that that kind of wraps up. Um, <laughs> a lot as of far stuff as our short of session, yeah. I, and I mean, we could probably do an hour on each of those things. Yeah. But um, so we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in the elections. Is it's the quadrennium? We've really been stoked, focused on the statewide. Put those words together. Uh, the major statewides, which is going to be your United States Senate and your governor's race. And so, um, one of the more interesting thing that's happened in the last week that's developed is um, you know, uh, an article that came out uh, about something in 2011. So you're looking at 11 years ago. Mike Durant said in a speech you know, that there would be cause or call for the government to disarm. Uh, and I guess he's talking about like in places where riots and things were going right. on that you could go in there and disarm the population and that there would be just cause to do that. Um, what do you think? Well, two things, I, you know, uh, again, in Mike's defense, and I'm not defending Mike necessarily, but I will say in his defense, he says he was talking about his time in Somalia and the, the difficulty in warlords and all that to go in and take away weapons. He was trying to explain that that's very difficult to do, and he didn't mean uh, an infringement upon the Second Amendment. Uh, uh, again, to, 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 to take the other point of view there with Mike, um, it does sound like he's saying taking away gun, guns and the rights of the, the populace to, to own and control their own guns. But I think the question, there's a bigger question, and it always seems to center around Mike Durant. Uh, and again, I'm not I'm not even sure who I'm going to vote for for Senate, so I'm not endorsing anybody. How far back do we go on things that people say, particularly when they were private citizens making speeches about things that he was a military expert about? And where you know where's the line? I personally, I think ten years, eleven years for Mike. I think that's worth bringing up. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, but but it's getting to get off Mike for a minute. Uh, Lindy Blanchard called K. Ivy a Fauci loving. Uh, tax hiking, Fauci loving, never Trump liberal. Yeah. Uh, again, it's almost like Trump calling Mo Brooks woke. 
I wouldn't call Kay Ivey a, a, a liberal. I might not agree with everything she does, and I don't, but there is some some words there that I don't you know, quite get. And where I would side with Lindy on this one is that if the special interest groups that control what's going on in Montgomery wanted her to be liberal, she would be, yeah. right? But that's, that, right. that's not what's going to win the day. It's not what's going to win the vote. And so is she tax hiking? Yes. Is she Fauci loving? Certainly seems like it. You know, if not Fauci loving, Scott Harris loving, right? In the yeah. sense that just, you know, rather than standing and doing bold leadership, just kind of caved to, to all the, the, the COVID stuff. Never Trump. I don't know that she's never Trump, but, I you know, she uh, definitely didn't. You know, I don't think she was at the, the, the Coleman Trump rally. Yeah. I don't think Trump has had nice things to say about her. I, I don't think she's never Trump, though. So much so that it sounds like she's going for the Trump endorsement yes. with her latest ad. Yes. You know, the, the election was stolen. Yeah. It's like, does she think she's running for Senate? Because I thought that's what you had to do to win the Senate race I was know. tell everybody that it's kind of crazy. So uh, that's what people want. Yeah. So, um, they're catering, and yeah. the catering part just just bothers me. Makes me want to throw yeah. up. Um, anyway, we've seen that. Everybody wants the Trump endorsement. Everybody wants to accuse the other person of not being Trump enough. They're combing through speeches from years ago to find some phrase that somebody said that they can attack. So anyway, yeah, I'm not. I don't. I, and you know, maybe this will be another podcast for another day too. Is just like, what do you do with the October surprise, right? Like, what do you do with these home stretch, you know, hit pieces that are going to be coming out? The opposition research that's been saved for just this time, you know, and then and we got to look at it for for when it's our people too. Like the you know the Hunter Biden stuff came out in a really. Yeah you know, convenient time for the Trump campaign. Is it true? Well, yeah, it appeared to be true. Um, then you saw the censorship that happened and took place and it's like, okay, well, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it, it is what it is. And so it'll, it's going to be interesting to see the, um, the, 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 the character assassinations that are sure to happen, especially if we get into a runoff. And I think, I hate to be um, suspicious here in the in the Biden case. I think it's great that the New York Times and Washington Post are suddenly acknowledging they screwed up uh, and not reporting on the Biden stuff. It also makes me wonder if they don't recognize that President Biden's in trouble and this is a way to go ahead and maybe get a different candidate uh, to run against him in 2024. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I think the state responds to positive uh, election campaign strategies I don't think the state necessarily responds to the negative. I know the out-of-state, the Washington, D.C. groups that come in here and advise candidates all tell them, hey, you got to say, you know, I love Trump. I stand with Trump. I hate the socialist, godless Democrats. And I just, I, I'm not sure that that really sways people as much as tell me what you can do for me, what you're going to do for me, and how you're going to do it. Be positive with your message. I think I think it depends on the race. And so Richard Shelby is going to be vacating a seat that these three people have um, are basically throwing their hat in the ring. There's more. There's like six people, but there's three major candidates, you know, that have a chance. And so they're going for a vacant seat. And so you could definitely make the case for a pure positive campaign. But if you're spending millions of dollars to replace a sitting incumbent Republican governor in a dark red state, um, you need to make your case. Right. And and now you can make your case without, you know, going into name calling and stuff like that. But again, you know, Trump was the biggest name caller ever and, and he won yeah. by like 70 percent here. So it's tough. But I do think that there's a huge difference between, you know, three people fighting for a, a vacancy versus trying to unseat an incumbent. Um, and so you really need to make your case. And I think Tim James has done a really good job of um, communicating the problems without being ugly. Um, I actually think he could probably go a little bit harder. Um, I think Dean Odell's done a good job of, of really summarizing what the problems have been and the mistakes that she's made. Um, I do think that, you know, if, if I'm, I think I said this last week, but if, if I've got millions of dollars and I'm running a campaign, like some of the stuff that I would do, I would put that, you know, this is a, you know, uh, this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It's not us right. regular folks. It's these unvaccinated people. I, you know, they think they have some sense. I would just put that on repeat on every TV show, yep. shift station, radio station. and would just have it running nonstop for the next three months. Um, but, you know, uh, name calling and all the other stuff, I don't know. But it, 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 it'll well, be interesting to see how things turn out. Yeah, just quickly, I, you know, we've had a chance to talk to, um, to um, Tim James, to, to Dave Thomas, to uh, Dean Odell that you spoke with, Lindy Linda Blanchard. Blanchard. Uh, they all are really smart people that have some really good ideas 
It's just a matter of who do you think could actually be effective at it and who could get lubered up. We've, and who we've can win. With, I think yeah. that's a factor, too. Who can win and then who can get it done? Those right. are kind of the two. And and uh, I'm saying I'm encouraged by, by, by getting to talk to all these people or at least listen from them and hear more about them that makes me feel good. Then I think these are people with good ideas. I don't know if they're all good people or not, and nobody's running for office and coming across and saying, hey, I'm the devil. But, you know, at least you get a chance to talk to them and hear from them. And it's interesting with, particularly I think of Dean Odell and Dave Thomas, who had a couple of the early marks against them for things they said, and rightfully they, they should be held accountable for. And yet you listen to them and you go, actually, I don't disagree with a lot of what you're saying here. Yeah. So um, it's it just why people need to be educated, need, yep. need to take the time to get to know folks and not just go by the headline. That's correct. Well, I think that wraps it up for today, guys. Um, again, always want to remind you, Go to 1819news.com, sign up for the newsletter so that that gets to you, and go uh, wherever you get your podcast and leave us a five-star review. Tell everyone how much you love the podcast because we know you do. Till next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. Mm-hmm.